So um, I just got back from retreat today. I've been sitting in retreat at Spirit Rock for the last eight days with uh, Venerable Analyo. And if you've come to SF5, I've talked about Analyo before. He's my favorite Buddhist teacher. And he's someone who wrote what I think is the best book about mindfulness called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And so, um, so he was teaching and I wanted to go sit with uh, Venerable Analyo, Bhikkhu Analyo. Analyo. And, um, uh, and I always like to hang out with him, you know, meaning sit with him, practice with him, and learn from him. Because I always learn so much and uh, he knows, he's so deeply studied in the Dharma. Uh, it's a little unbelievable. It's hard to imagine until you're around him. And then, you know, you're happy that he shares his knowledge because it's so deep. And there were a lot of teachers. I wasn't the only teacher sitting on the retreat with Analyo, a number of friends of mine, and also Pam Weiss, who's a teacher at the Wednesday night class here. Um, uh, but it's, it's always imp impressive to me when he teaches because he knows Buddhism so thoroughly and so fully. And he, he also, I, I just found this out, he speaks 11 different languages. So you get an idea, he's got a good mind is what people say. He's, and he speaks 11 different languages, some of which nobody speaks anymore because he studies the ancient language that the Buddha taught him, right? And so he can speak in that language, which basically nobody speaks in, in the Pali language, or he's, you know, Sanskrit he can speak, and, you know, Chinese and uh, Tibetan, things like that, in addition to things like, he's German by birth, and so he speaks, you know, European languages and English and etc. And um, and he and what's interesting is Analyo always cross references, so he's he's using uh, what he calls early Buddhist texts, which may predate the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is what most of the Theravada teaching is based on, and I teach out of the Theravada tradition. Insight meditation vipassana is in the is in the Theravadan tradition, which is can, it's translated as the the um, lineage of the elders, right in Buddhism, and so he so but he also studies very much the Chinese canon, which is Mahayana, um, and to see who said what, and also the Tibetan lineage, the Vajrayana lineage. Um, to see what did the Buddha actually say that came down through all these different traditions and what did the different traditions add on in addition to what the Buddha said? Like what was there and what, what, what got added on to it? What, what did some people, oh, they really like this idea so they're going to put it in instead of, oh, here's what the Buddha taught. And uh, so it's always very fascinating for me to go sit with him because I learn a lot about Buddhism and Buddhist practice. And um, 
and I've sat mostly Satipatthana retreats with him, and he was doing Anapanasati, so I went to sit with him. And I gave you this one, the instructions on mindfulness of breathing, right? That's what he gave out to us for our practice for the eight days. And then, and so we can see, and what we have here is a traditional Pali text, a, a sutta, in the first, in the top section of what I gave you on the instructions on mindfulness of breathing. And then the bottom section is his compilation of it and the way he thinks about it. And then I gave you a longer version or more uh, a version that also has the Satipatthana components and the different tetras and and another way that it's talked about. And either one, well, I'll be referring to either of them so you can look at them. And, but as you can see, and he added on the zero. He said he got that from the Chinese canon because he couldn't make sense of everything until he added on the zero. And then the zero means you bring mindfulness to the fore. You always start with mindfulness. And then from there, you're aware if you're breathing in long, breathing out long, or breathing in short, or breathing out short. And as we were doing to begin, and then be aware of the whole body while you're breathing in and out. And then being aware of calming or tranquilizing, or my word, relaxing the body as you're breathing in and out. And the breathing in and out is the whole time but it goes, he, would, he talked about it, it's in the per, more in the periphery of awareness at some point. You start by focusing on the in and out and the short and long, and then you're just aware that the body is breathing, and then you can focus on these other components of the Dharma. So you're not just doing um, a kind of um, one thing, this is it, mindfulness practice. You're doing a very proactive study of the Dharma through the contemplation of the breath. And so, and so you'll see the second set, the second tetra, tetrad, that he lists is experiencing joy and breathing in and out, uh, experiencing happiness, breathing in and out, experiencing mental activity, breathing in and out, calming or relaxing mental activity, breathing in and out. And so the breath is happening all the time, even while you're being proactive with your, with your direct experience. And he had certain translations for experiencing joy or experiencing happiness. He talked about joy as the joy of when you just get here in the moment. And there's a certain kind of joy when you're not in your mind anymore. You're not just going forward or backwards or what happened or what's going to happen or in your ideas, but you actually land here in the present moment of being with the body and the breathing. There's a kind of what he called joy. And then he also used the word happiness. Is, and the happiness is part of the, a deeper sense of joy goes to happiness, and it's a sublime happiness. It's not happiness like, you know, I won the lottery, or um, what did I read about? Somebody just made like millions of dollars 
he made a bet on Tiger Woods winning the Masters, and he made like $1.5 million on the bet because the odds were so great. That's a good, good betting win, and you would feel really happy. It's not that kind of happiness. It's, it's a more sublime happiness of, of being present and being here and being aware and being with life itself as it's happening. Because where you're sitting is where life is happening right now, in this moment, in your direct experience. This is where life is happening and in all its forms. Right, meaning good, bad, or indifferent, you liking it or not liking it or wanting it or not, it's still, this is where life is happening in the liveness that's sitting in your seat. And so, and so he says, and so the, the first part is, is a mindfulness of the body practice. The second four of experiencing joy, happiness, and mental activity and calming of mental activity is, is the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedna. And he translates Vedna, it's often translated as feeling. He said feeling tone. And it's really a bit about the texture of experience and the, the flavor, that's better than texture here, flavor of experience, which is it's either something we like or something we don't like or something we neither like nor not like. It's neutral. So it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And we can be aware of all of this while we're sitting and in, in a very relaxed way. And so you start, and so um, uh, this, the, uh, the 16 steps, because we were on a retreat for nine days, we, the, we would go through four components each day. The first four, then the, add the second four, and then the third four, and then the fourth to the sixth. So you have all 16. And you could move back and forth depending on what's needed. And this also is a very beautiful part of Buddha's teachings that Amalia likes to emphasize, which is you have to become the master of your own practice. And that's something the Buddha said over and over again. He said, become the master of your practice. Here's the practice. Now you become the master. You learn the practice. You learn how to practice and use it skillfully, and you will wake up. So, and then I'll just say that, and I only went through some of it here this today because we only have a short time. But so we went through uh, men experiencing mental activity and relaxing mental activity, um, and then he and then he went to the mind. The next the next four experiencing the mind while you're breathing, gladdening the mind while you're breathing, concentrating the mind while you're breathing, and liberating the mind when you're breathing. And it's really beautiful teaching to see how you can work with your mind. And he, he, when he talked about mind, he talked about pure mind, sometimes talked about as consciousness itself, being aware of consciousness itself, or the pure mind, and the mind that knows what's happening, right? Because whenever you know what's happening, classically in Buddhism, it's your mind that knows. And so, 
And so you start to experience them and become aware of what's knowing. Not just what you know, but what's knowing what you know. Like what's, no, even right now, you know that I'm speaking and there's a sound. What's knowing that there's sounds and that I'm speaking? And you want to look experientially in your own self. What is it that knows? Not your idea about what knows, but the experience of what knows. And that starts to point in what he called pure mind or pure consciousness. There was another word he used, vinyasana. Vinyasana, I don't have the Pali quite right. And, um, and so you, you start by being aware of the mind that knows, the pure mind. Um, and then gladdening the mind is, is really part of the joy part. It's part of the joy of being aware of what's actually here that often we're not aware of and we don't pay attention to what knows or the consciousness that's knowing. And then he said about concentrating the mind, becoming more unified with it or more one with it. Um, and that, that, the word tech, you're more aware of the texture of the mind itself. Is it open or is it closed or does it feel smooth that it actually has, consciousness can have a texture and we can actually feel it, be aware of it. Or is it gritty? Or is it totally free in some way? And then, of course, he, he call, the next step he calls uh, liberating the mind or contemplating the, the liberating the mind. And um, uh, liberating the mind means seeing that it's not you. It's here and you're relating to it, but it's not you. It's, a, it's there on its own. It's, um, it's, it's free from what the term in Buddhism that's used is conceit. And conceit always has to do with I, me, and mine. Right? That's, that's the, what, what a conceit is. So this is me, this is I, this is mine. And, and so part of the freedom that the Buddha taught and that's pointed at in this one simple practice is becoming free of the conceit of I, me, and mine. And especially in, that's part of what the pure mind is free of, is the idea of I, me, or mine. There's just the consciousness that's here. And, you know, of course, I've said this other times, and I like to say it this way, but consciousness, uh, if you want to see if, if it's your consciousness, then let's believe it is your consciousness. Right? How many believe that the consciousness is their consciousness? Anybody or nobody? Be, be honest, one person. Sometimes just sort of maybe. Sort of maybe. <laughs> How about any, nobody else thinks about consciousness? Thank you. Anyhow. So, but the interesting thing, even if you secretly believe it's your consciousness, then try to stop it or get rid of it. Right? Because we're not in control of it at all. But it's here and alive. But it's not something we're doing. And it's not something we own. And that's a longer conversation sometime.
So, um, so you go through the, the experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind, the I, me, and mind. I, me, and mind, mind. I, me, and mind, mind. And then the dharmas. And then you do more pure dharmic reflection, contemplating impermanence while you're breathing and you're aware of the body, contemplating dispassion, uh, meaning um, uh, dispassion, there was a lot. Uh, it's really contemplating being a little more laid back, disengaged from everything. Contemplating cessation, meaning actually contemplating how things end, and especially with the breath, and I could have thrown this in, but it was good enough before, but you could be aware of, the, of an in-breath and that every in-breath ends. And then you could be aware of the out-breath and every out-breath ends. And so cessation is part of our living reality, moment by moment. And of course, everything ends. And so being aware of the cessation of things is something that starts to free us. And that is why the Buddha, Buddha taught about impermanence. And um, yeah, um, so the <clears throat> yeah, so the the contemplating impermanence, and then contemplating dispassion, um, uh, the way we color experience sometimes. Is, is also to be uh, not, not so identified with it, with our ideas and beliefs and what we put on experience, but just being aware of the experience itself and then being aware that every experience begins and ends. And that's just n totally normal, that there's cessation of every experience and you know, well, like the, we had a sitting for 40 minutes, it began and then it ended. And I'm talking now and then I began and it's gonna end. And the, this evening, same thing, it's gonna end and we'll all go to sleep and then the sleep will end. And then the, um, after the contemplating cessation is contemplating letting go which really means not holding on to anything. And, and really contemplating it means it's not that you, you go on retreat and you think about contemplating cessation or letting go or, or dispassion. It's not like you, you think for a little bit and then you feel into it or sense into it. Somebody said a beautiful thing. They said, oh, they loved when they started contemplating impermanence. And then it, she said, uh, she realized, oh, I am impermanence itself. And so the contemplation is not from a distance. It's experiencing oneself as imp she was impermanence itself. And that, she said, oh, then the whole thing started to go deeper. Because you become one with your, what you're experiencing on retreat. And so, especially with contemplating the the, the Dharma, you start to become the Dharma itself. <clears throat> so, let's see. And so, and this other thing that 
uh, Analio does that I really love is he weaves in the Dharma. It's not just one thing. So he was also weaving in different facets of Buddhist practice and how they're highlighted in this kind of teaching of mindfulness of breathing. And he talked about the aggregates of form, the five aggregates, which are a very classic list in Buddhism of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And, you know, if we look at what I've given you, you'll see that it's already there. Form is the first four components of the first tetrad. It's form is body, right? And then the second is all feeling or feeling tone or vedna, which is the, the flavor of experience. And then uh, perception is perceiving, even perceiving the, the, um, uh, the breath or perceiving the um, mental activity. You're using perception the whole, the whole time. It's functioning in the, these 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing. And then the mental formations, you're, you're watching them, you see them, they arise. The mental and emotional activation. Remember, in Buddhism, generally, mental and emotional is the same word, chitta. It means this, you can translate it as mind or heart. Either way, it's the same component that's pointed at. Even though we tend to separate things in the West, it wasn't separate in the time of the Buddha. The people would point to their chest when they were talking about their mind. They wouldn't point to their head. So it's a, it was a different era. Um, and, then, um, uh, and then consciousness, right, is, is mind, right? And so, and so he would weave in these, the, you know, to, so you see the five aggregates are right here and are practicing the Anapanasati Sutta. And then the other one that he used a lot that I really like are the seven factors of awakening. And I've taught a lot about that, both at Spirit Rock and here. Um, and and uh, the seven factors of awakening are mindfulness, investigation, uh, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi, concentration, and equipoise. Equanimity is what's usually used. He used the term equipoise. And the seven factors are factors of consciousness that can um, lead to awakening, that support the movement towards freedom. And, um, and he kept pointing, he would, would point out how the seven factors are right here, right? We start with mindfulness, right? And the whole practice is a mindfulness practice. And then, and then the feeling tone in the second four um, components of the uh, 16 are about feeling and feeling tone and vedna. And then, um, oh, excuse me, let me go back. Mindfulness and then investigation. So you're investigating, is the breath long or short? That's investigation. You're paying attention to what's happening and you're discerning by using the investigative quality of heart and mind. And then the energy is the kind of aliveness that it takes to stay present for the whole time. And like uh, somebody was standing up, you were standing up at some point, I thought, oh great, because 
you know, uh, here's some, something I didn't say about Analyo. Analyo is one of the best meditators I've ever seen, really. And I've sat with him many times now. And he, you start the morning, and at, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning, and he sits until noon, right? And he doesn't move. And he doesn't start teaching till nine. So he sits from six till nine, and then he sits again. He and you, you leave to go, you, or six to six, Wait, we would sit from six till uh, seven, and then then go have breakfast and things like that. He would sit till nine. We'd come back at nine. He would teach at nine, and then and then when he was done teaching in forty minutes or fifty minutes or an hour, then he would just continue to sit till noon. And then he would go for his monastic food and offerings and have his meal. And then he would come back and we would start again at 2.15 or 2.30 and he would sit. Really, I don't know when he stopped sitting because we would go out to dinner, you know, not out to dinner at Spirit Rock. He would go to dinner and come back and he'd be sitting and then until the bill, oh no, he, he would stay till 7. Um, 45. And then he had the, his other teachers, they would do some talks then. But he would leave that because he doesn't like talks. He likes to sit. And, uh, and really, and he's good at sitting. And that's, anyhow, it impress, always impresses me when somebody can sit that long. And he's not moving. He's a little, I did see him fall asleep a couple times. I was happy to see that. <laughs> God, he's human at least. You know. and, uh, yeah, he, he's a good, good guy, a good gentleman. Um, so, okay. So, so the whole practice is about being present with this proactive practice of Anapanasati. And it's different than how we generally teach mindfulness in, uh, at Spirit Rock, because we teach, oh, you just be aware of one thing. You'll be aware of the body, you'll be aware of breath, you'll be aware of sounds, you'll be aware of feelings, you'll be aware of thoughts, you'll be aware of something, and you keep, you stay aware, and then you're aware of what happens as you stay aware of what happens to consciousness, but you're not doing it, you're doing it in a more receptive way, not in a proactive way. And so this was much more proactive. But still, for me, is saying, it was very similar to retreats I've done, because even with the proactive part, things calm down. And it's one of the great things, if you've never sat a residential retreat of a few days, like four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, sixty, it's powerful. And it's very powerful. And it's beautifully, it's amazingly powerful what happens if you basically do nothing. Because all you're doing is sitting and doing walking meditation. He doesn't teach walking meditation because he doesn't do walking meditation. He said he never liked it. So, okay, but he, the way you did walking meditation was you just want to be aware of the whole body while you're walking. Just aware of the whole body. 
and which I really like that because I've done many different kinds of walking, including very slow vipassana walking, you know, zombie walking, and it's great, and I know the benefit of it. But what's nice about the whole body is you can go do whatever you want. Meaning, I, a few days I took the really big hike up the Great Loop at Spirit Rock, which is just great. And it's funny, I have an Apple Watch now, and it tells you things, like here, it tells me, you know, how many calories the movement has accrued, and how much sleep, blah, 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 I did and this, how many steps I took, right, how many miles I walked, how many flights climbed. After I did the big loop, which is a good hill, at Spirit Rock, it said that I had climbed 97 flights of stairs, mm -hmm. even though, if, you know, I'd say I was impressed with that. It's more stairs than I think I could walk up. So anyhow, but so, um, so for me, the practice was similar to retreats. Retreats have their pluses and minuses. I don't know if that's the best way to say it. I mean, they have parts that are really enjoyable and delicious and blissful and parts that are very um, where the composure is so sublime and so simple and it's like you're not doing anything you're just being and it's delicious in the very sublime way it's that sublime kind of joy and they're hard, difficult things happen, hard things happen, painful emotions or mind states come or ideas or beliefs. And so I had some of all of that which happens on retreat. And so I was being mindful of body and mind and I did a lot of sitting and I was, and I haven't been sitting, I haven't had such good physical form lately for me meaning like even I haven't been sitting on a cushion much because my body's been hurting. And so I've been sitting like I was earlier on a bench. So that was good. I was sitting 45 minutes. I was sitting on a chair and I was able to sit for 45 minutes and then an hour and then an hour and a half and then a couple hours without moving. And you know, for me that's good and, and that helps with samadhi. That helps if you stay still the mind starts to get still. Uh, but it doesn't just stay still, unfortunately. So, um, so I, you know, so I was trying to get concentrated and get there, and it wasn't so easy the first few days. And I was sitting on the bench. I was also doing a bunch of standing meditation because my body hurt, and it didn't, didn't hurt so much standing. And then after about three nights, something, middle of the night, I woke up with tremendous fear. I mean, serious fear. Like, I don't recommend this kind of fear, but it happens. And, you know, and I knew it was fear. And I worked with it in bed. I just kept practicing in bed. And I kept um, uh, watching my mind, because it wasn't just fear as a, as, an, as, a, as a somatic, kinesthetic experience. It was ideas, right? It was judgments, it was beliefs. And it was, and I knew they weren't true, but they felt true, right? 
and it was ideas about myself and about what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, what I should be doing. A lot of judging mind came in, which I don't usually have much of that judging mind these days, but I did on retreat. And, uh, and a lot of self-judgment, a lot of comparison. And you know, and so I went on the retreat also. A lot of people know me when I go on a retreat at Spirit Rock, because I've taught here and at Spirit Rock for so many years. So a lot of um, practitioners come up, especially at the beginning, before you go into silence, you know, and they want to say hello to me, and do you remember me, and how are you, it's great to see you, and it's all nice and all, but it's like, um, somehow I just, all of it just stirred up something in me and brought this fear. and. Uh, um, and also comparing one of my friends who was sitting, I saw in like a day, means he went into deep samadhi, and I could feel it, and I was jealous. It's like, that's what I want, and I wasn't having that at all, and I wasn't happy about that. And so, and so then I'm doing all this comparing with him, and I practice longer than him, and I'm better. I did way more samadhi than him, but, <laughs> but. And so, and, um, and I started feeling like I should leave the retreat. This is in the middle of the night, and don't ever leave the retreat in the middle of the night if you have that feeling. <laughs> that much I know, you don't do that. And, but, but it was, it was very strong, and I, what I did know was this is irrational, right? Like whatever, I, whoever I am, I'm okay, right? I mean, good or bad, right or wrong, you know? And so, and so I just sat with it, sat with it, and breathed with it, and practiced with it, and uh, you know, I do lying down meditation in bed, and, and then finally I got back to sleep, which I was just happy to get to sleep and get out of that fear, you know, syndrome. And I got up and I went to, and I thought, will I be able to practice? And I went and I went and sat in the six o'clock sitting and it was great. It was like, boom, I was there. It was like something came through me, went through me, Classically in Buddhism, they would say, oh, there was some purification happened, and whatever you want to call it, I'm glad to get purified once in a while. And, uh, and you know, and then it was like, it was, I just had this day of practice. It was like, I couldn't stop practicing. Like, and there was no distraction then, or no difficulty, and the samadhi was there, and it wasn't me doing the samadhi, it was just there. And, and really lovely and, and beautiful. And, um, and even when there was mental activity, it was so easy just to watch the mental activity and not be part of it. Like it was just happening on its own. And the awareness, I was just aware of what was happening. And so it was very lovely, and, and lovely to see even, even, and really using the schema, like watching mental activity, I would notice, oh, mental activity, mental activity, and it would just relax. And so, and then I felt like, oh yeah, then I'm going to the tranquility and, and, and seeing how the mind gets balanced. And so it was really good for a few days, um, and then, 
it wasn't good again, right? Because that's how retreats go. They go up and down and in and out, and good and bad. And, and, uh, and then again, I was having a lot of self-judgment, which I'm just not used to. And so, and one of the people who I would call assistants, there were two assistants to, to Venerable Amalio, which is Shiloh Catherine, who I've known for years and years, before she was a teacher and now is a teacher, and uh, Aya Ananda Bodhi. And I think many of you know Aya Ananda Bodhi. She's taught here, and she lived in the city for many years and now lives in the foothills. Um, her and Santichita, Aya Santichita, are friends of mine and, um, and nuns. And uh, so, um, and I, but I've never sat with Aya Ananda Bodhi. I've known her more as a colleague and a friend and always loved to go visit her when they were living out at 48th Avenue and stuff like that and just chat about Dharma. And, uh, but she, she gave a, she and Shyla were giving the talks each night, and um, and uh, and she and I really liked her talks. She was just great, great meaning she was real, and that's what I like in a Dharma teacher. I like being real, and I, I and I don't like um, sometimes teachers can have what I call a teacher shell. Like you, you, you just get the teacherness. You don't get the person. You don't get the human beingness. And that, to me, is very important. I'm, when I'm sitting, I want the human beingness. And so, and she gave a, a talk that I really loved. And and so I, I, I sent her a note. I said, "Can I meet with you?" Because they were meeting with people, but I wasn't doing. I wasn't included in that, which was fine. I didn't want to be in a group. Uh, meeting with them, and uh, and so she said, sure, and, and uh, of course I always forget she's a nun, because it's like a friend, but I mean, I come into a room, she said, oh, you have to leave the door open, I can't be in a room with a man with the door closed, and, and I'm like, I'm, and I'm not in a good mood because I'm having all this dukkha, and so I'm like, oh, I hate these rules. She said, well, yeah, you can hate them, but we just have to follow them. And she's very relaxed that way. And, um, and then we had a great conversation. And I said, I keep feeling like I want to talk to somebody. I don't just want to sit by myself right now. I want to speak to someone, so I wanted to speak to you. And we had a great talk about the Dharma and uh, the different components of the Dharma and how the reason I was drawn to getting, asking her to talk to her was she said she's not a mind person. That's not her orientation. She's a heart person. And she's not a, and I'm a mind person. I mean, if, you know, I mean, I have a good heart and all, but I'm, I'm a mind guy. And, uh, and so I wanted to talk to her. We just had a beautiful talk about the heart and my heart and what was happening. And she gave me a little transmission of the heart that was really beautiful and that really landed and was freeing for me because I realized I was, there was too much mind going on. And, um, and that changed the, the retreat for me. And it was also, it changed my relationship to her because I've never been seen her as a, I've never been a student in that role. 
and I'm fine to be in that role when that's needed. And it was, uh, and she was surprised because she, we talked even while we were talking. She she said, "Oh, you're being very vulnerable." I said, "I feel very vulnerable. I feel very here and open and tender and vulnerable." And so, of course, I'm going to be. And she was very, very uh, kind about it, but also. Are you, are you taping me and somebody else at the same time? That's okay. Thank you. Um, and so, um, uh, and so, she was very um, uh, clear about uh, her teaching, and especially about the heart, and about the importance of being. She said she's a faith-based person. And I'm a more discerning kind of person. And that part, and I said, yeah, I don't have a lot of faith. That's not my thing. It's not that I'm faithless, or, or, or but, but I, it's not how I think of myself, right? I think, oh, what do I care about? And what, what wakes me up? That's what I'm interested in. Also, but I do think, what do I love? And that's really important to me in the Dharma. And that's, so we were talking all about faith and stuff like that. And, um, and her open-heartedness in being with me when I was having a difficult time, that's what was freeing. And that's really part of the Sangha and the Dharma of us being together is that we can be kind with one another because as all of you know, it's not easy being a human being. Human beings have their pluses and minuses. And so it's quite a beautiful transmission because she didn't, you know, she, later we talked about it, but I went away and then it was like, I just had a great time. And mostly I had a great time just being myself. Whatever myself was, being exactly who I was, like, didn't, didn't matter, good yogi, bad yogi, good teacher, bad teacher. Those are all ideas, right? But what's here is basically good. And I can enjoy just being myself very fully. And in, in the, on the retreat, it was in the role as student and practitioner. And so I had fun. And it made me feel a lot less guilty about taking the big hikes that I had so much fun taking. Because I'm used to sitting and walking, sitting, walking, being very diligent. And this was much more fun. <laughs> Anyhow, so there's a few thoughts about retreat, my re this retreat, my retreat. And of course, you know, I like to hear any thoughts from you. Uh, any of this makes sense or not make sense or anything that I handed out that was interesting or not interesting. And then we can bring the Dharma into the room very fully. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.